Alright folks, um, today I'm gonna talk about Nepal and the Rai people. It's, uh, just, <laughs> fuck it, hey man, life is, uh, pretty interesting, man. Okay, Nepal is from Britan Britannica. <clears throat> Nepal, country of Asia, lying along the southern slopes of the Himalayan mountain ranges it is, <clears throat> sorry it is a landlocked country located between india to the east south and west and the tibet autonomous region of china to the north it's ter it's basically a buffer zone between india and china well i mean tibet was there too but china claimed china ate that up so um its territory extends roughly 500 miles from east to west and 90 to 150 miles from north to south. The capital is Kathmandu. Nepal, long under the rule of hereditary prime ministers favoring a policy of isolation, remained... Anyways, I'm not going to read all this shit. What I do want to read... You can look up... You can, you can read up on um, Nepal. It's... It's fucking crazy. I did. I never knew Nepal was so diverse <clears throat> because it was a buffer zone for so long. People could just go and you know live the way that we want. They wanted to worship their gods. Uh, 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 they were free to follow their religion. Nepal is like so diverse. Okay, anyways. Um, this is history of Nepal. Ancient Nepal is not from, from Wikipedia. Well, actually, Wikipedia is like a good outline, let's say. <laughs> and then, then you can, you know, get more specific. But let's see, Nepal history. I mean, I guess I could just do it from, or the actual government website of Nepal. It is actually very interesting, man. Nepal, um, they still have a monarchy. They have a king. They are full, uh, green. Well, I think something like they went. They're trying to go full green, dude. Their history is crazy. They're uh, man, this like I cannot believe I did not know about Nepal sooner than this. But anyways, um, all right, this is from the actual government website. Uh, let's do some. Fucking okay, I'll read this first. Re records mention the Gopalas and Mahishapalas, believed to have been the earliest rulers, with their capital at. Mata Tirtha, the southwest corner of the Kathmandu Valley. From the 7th or 8th century BC, the Kirantis are said to have ruled the valley. Their famous king Yalumbar is even mentioned in the epic Mahabharata. Mahabharata, okay. Around 300 AD, the Lichavis arrived from northern India and overthrew the Kirantis. Uh, on 
one of the legacies okay this one is let me just read this 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 is from Britannica okay prehistory and early history Nepal's rich prehistory consists mainly of the legendary traditions of the Nawar, the indigenous community of Nepal Valley, now usually called Kathmandu Valley. There are usually both they there are usually both Buddhist and Brahmanic Hindu versions of these various legends. Both versions are accepted indiscriminately in the festivals associated with legendary events, a tribute to the remarkable synthesis that has been achieved in Nepal between the two related but divergent value systems. <clears throat> um, anyways, you can read up on Nepal if you want. I wanted to read up on this group of people called the Rai people in Nepal. Hmm... Well, let me see. Uh, okay, also, did you know that in Nepal, or did you know that Buddha was apparently bo born in Nepal in a uh, place called Lumbini? I didn't know that. I, I always thought Buddha was born in India, but apparently he was born in Nepal. Okay, um... <clears throat> By 55,000 years ago, the first modern humans had arrived on the Indian subcontinent from Africa, where they had earlier evolved. The earliest known modern human remains in South Asia date to about 30,000 years ago. The oldest discovered archaeolo archaeological evidence of human settlements in Nepal dates to around the same time. After 6,500 BC, evidence for the domestication of food crops and animals, construction of permanent structures, and storage of agricultural surplus appeared in. Okay. Basically, I was trying to see how many types of people. Uh, anyways, I'm just going to start reading this. Okay, the Rai, R A I are a Kirati ethno-linguistic group in eastern part of Nepal, the Indian states of Sikkim and West Bengal, predominantly Darjeeling Hills, and in southwestern Bhutan. The Rais are a set of, of groups, one of the cultivating tribes of Nepal. They inhabited between, they inhabited between the Dudkosi and Tama rivers in Nepal. Um Okay, um It's very interesting. Apparently they their their mythology is that here let me just fucking read this shit now, man. Fuck it. Okay. The Kirat the Rai Shamans. I'm telling you, man, this shit just gets more and more interesting. Okay. Um, general background of the study. Um, 
Okay. History of Kirati people as an indigenous community of Nepal. In the history of Nepal, first recorded, though still legendary, history began with the Kirat dynasty that arrived first in the Kathmandu Valley and ruled over it. The first king of this dynasty was Elam, also known as Yalambar, who was referenced in the great Hindi epic Mahabharata. According to the first historian of Nepal, Baburam Acharya, the Kirati people came to Nepal in about 700 BC and ruled over it. The first king of this Kirati dynasty was Yalambar. In the history of Nepal, this Kirati period was taken as a very significant one because it was taken as the longest period that extended from prehistoric to historic period. In the ancient Hindu scriptures, Nepal is referred to the Kirat Desh or the land of the Kirats. Yeah, this is this is what I'm saying. Nepal. This was in in Far Cry uh, Four, in Kirat, the land that that game took place in Kirat in Nepal. Okay, altogether there were 29 kings of the Kirati dynasty who ruled over Nepal for about wow, a thousand and two hundred twenty-five years. Did you hear that? Altogether, there were 29 kings who ruled Nepal for about 1,200 years. Okay, One thing I learned from watching some documentaries of the history of Nepal is that a lot of the symbology from our, our, our uh, creation myths, like the raven or the whatever animal... It's they're talking about royalty. <laughs> they're talking about royal families. Oh my goodness! It, then it all clicked. I was like, "Of course, stories are for the people." <laughs> okay. It is mentioned in history that they ruled Nepal from about 900 BC to 300 AD. On the basis of the Puranas and other ancient religious texts, it is presumed that the Kirati dynasty was ruled in Nepal after Gopal and, Ma and Mahipal. The first king of this dynasty was Yalambar, who defeated Bhuvan Singh. The last one was Ahir dynasty who established the Kirat rule in Nepal. He extended his kingdom as far as the Tista River in the east and the Trishuli in the west. The Kirati people were the aborigines of the northeastern Himalayas. They were short, had robust bodies, broad checks, flat noses, and dark eyes. They were well trained in the art of warfare and were considered uh, considered as very skillful archers. Hmm. Before the unification of Nepal, the part of Kirat Pradesh used to be called Manj Kirant, that is Middle Kirant. Middle Earth. Hmm, could it be? It is the land that is traditionally inhabited by the Rai Kirati people. Following the unification, which is interesting, the word Rai also to them means king or chief. Mm. From Roy or, or Roy, Rai, Ray. It's all 
I think connect. Okay. Um, rise were given rights. Okay. Following the unification of the Kingdom of Nepal, rise were given rights of Kipat autonomy and ownership of the land in Maj Kirant. It's assumed that the place is spread along the valley slopes of the Dudkoshi and Arun rivers, which is big rivers among seven big rivers in Nepal. Palo Kirant, Far Kirant, and Munj Kirant, Middle Kirant, is the main territory of present-day Kirati, Kirati people. Also, apparently, the Kirati people are known as the Lion people, L-I-O and Lion, as in the like animal lion people. In these, apparently, because their spirit, they're very spirited, like lions or something like that. Okay, anyways, um. In these areas, Kirti people lived thousands of years ago. Munch Kirant was broken up into five districts Solu, Kumbu, Okaldunga, Kotang, Bhojpur, and Udaipur. It is also said that Rai's occupied a much larger area than where they are found today. Um, I mean, apparently, these Rai's came all the way down to West Bengal too. I mean, it's it's right there like West Bengal, Darjeeling, Sikkim, all that area apparently. Anyways. Um in the present political scenario, lots of debates have been started concerning who is the actual Kirati people of Nepal. Debate about Questions of identity and the legitimacy about identity among the various ethnic groups in Nepal. Kirti is the old Sanskrit word that is related to two main meanings. The first one can be understood as highlanders, a meaning referring to the form of Shiva, god of mountains, and another one is tribal people. Yo, god of mountains. Shiva is god of mountains. Really? Huh. I'm gonna have to. Okay. Okay. There are lots of terms about Kirat that is used in the old text, such as Mahabharata, Ramayana, and Purana. In old records about the history of Nepal, numerous terms describe the Kirati, such as the first inhabitants of Nepal were Kirat, as well as one of the oldest civilizations in the world. In the period of the Kirat dynasty in Nepal, there was no social or gender discrimination as in the caste system. Women were not subordinated to their husbands. It seems that Kirati have been practicing democratic socialism as their political system. Being brave, a strong sense of community and solidarity were important and practiced through their religion, Mudham. Now, look at this shit, man. This is fucking interesting as fuck because... There, this religion thing is called Mudham, okay? Which is basically shamanism. And then in Korea, their thing is called Mudang. And guess what? It's also about shamanism. And guess what? These people, the character people, apparently, their uh, uh, origins is from Tibet. All the way from fucking Tibet. Anyways, I'm just saying, for if we all go far back enough, we all 
we all fucking started from the same probably the same area man okay but after the hindus okay wait did i read it? okay women okay mudam questions can be raised for example as how they could form the brilliant civilization how they practice their rules and how they managed to become a small group of tribes far away in the mountains but it was declared many times written in history that when the kirati kings ruled the Kathmandu valley Mudam was unique and true, but after the Hindus arrived, they declared the war upon Kirti people. They destroyed everything, everything was divided, and many people were killed. They displaced the Kirti people. Hmm, interesting. It says when Hinduism arrived. So it's like every religion, every one of these state religions. Hmm, that's what it is. State religions versus... Okay, according to Kirti myths, in ancient time, Kirti people used to cultivate cotton wools through special insects called karata. What? From this word, Kirti was derived in an ancient period. The Greek people are also familiar to Kirti people. They called Kirti people as a Kidaya. Look at this shit. In the present time, there is a debate about Kirti people and where they actually came from in Nepal, but nevertheless the word Kirti was mentioned as a brave and strong people in great Hindi epics. As, as another example of word Kiraya, Kirat has its origin in the Kirati language, meaning Kiraya or strong animals such as lion and tiger. Yo, Samson. Samson's riddle. What is. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. That way, curated people consider themselves as like tigers or lions. In addition, in any curated community, flags bear the symbols of animals such as lions and tigers. Oh my god, man. <laughs> in the Kirti holy book Mudam, it is mentioned that the word Kirati also correlates also correlates with purification. That means that that means at that time, Kirti people were considered as a pure soul who lived in the Kilasa mountain. This is what I'm saying. The further back I go, it seems like these Ainu, these Kirati, these Tibetans, these, there's like this, there seems to be this sort of ancient stock of people that keeps going back to this this sort of theme like nature shaman stuff like the further back I go yeah that's what it seems like like shamans civilization just I don't know something it's just interesting okay let me see Alright, there we go. Um, I'll put a link for this PDF on in the descriptions. Um, geographical settlement settlement patterns of Rai Kirti community past and present. 
In, in present time, we find diverse settlements of Rai character people all over the world. You know what? Let me read this one part from this book. The it's a very interesting man. These it's it's it's, it's like. Uh, you'll see here. I'll, I'll start reading and you'll see. Okay. Vertcurities in prehistoric world. Virtually nothing has been written about the people generically identified as the Indo-Mongolians, yet their history must essentially precede that of the history of the Gurkhas, the endemic populace of Nepali, Nepalese highlands. The earliest account of the Indo-Mongolians, here identified as the Kiratis, has been found recorded in the Hindu epics which identify them as the aboriginal people inhabiting the Himalayan regions. According to this source, the image of the Kiratis, Kiratis has been projected as the unsophisticated rustic dwellers of the woodlands. It's just Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, basically bullshit Cain and Abel. Strange as it may sound, God Siwa, Brahmanic spelling Shiva, huh? Well, yeah, that's that's interesting. One of the three supreme gods of Hindu trinity is also portrayed in the same epics as an ascetic dwelling in the snow-clad mountains of the Himalayas. What did I tell ya? Shiva was a shaman. Of fairer skin color than the other two native gods, Shiva was also has always been identified, even in Brahmanic circles, as a Kirati attired in the manner of a hunter. Telling you these Mongols Fuck the shit out of everyone. <laughs> it is to the prehistoric world when man was still a hunter-gatherer. God Siwa appears as a Kirati hunter, draped in a single leopard skin wraparound, often armed with a trident or a bow and arrows. To the Hindus, this very image also happens to be the most popularly recognized iconographic representations of, according to Brahmanic tradition, the god of destruction. The Kiratis, on the other hand, have from the very beginning of time identified themselves in the image of the in the image of Siwa the hunter, and upon that ground they claim their noble ancestry. Significantly, however, long before the arrival of the Brahmins in in their midst, the Kiratis themselves had been claiming a direct lineage from Siwa, but but to the exclusion of the Brahmanic prejudices. Kiratis have associated their god Siwa to the snow-clad Himalayas, whose residence, I'm going to say Shiva because I think we're more familiar with that one. Kiratis have associated, the, associated their god Shiva to the snow-clad Himalayas, whose residence they recognize with an abstract mountain abode known colloquially as Paru. Centuries later, after recognizing Paru Hang as their own god Shiva, the Brahmins have begun to refer to Paru as Kailas in Brahmanic parlance. 
to the huh okay so Kailash Mount Kailash was known as Paru interesting to the Kirtis, their god is not a distant god, but one who lives among them, sharing their daily pace of life. However, a misapprehension has lately been given unfair share of attention that Kirti god is a very angry god, and every time a Kirti transgresses on his moral obligations, he is, severe, he is severely punished. So instead of seeking wisdom and grace from Paruhang, which is basically Mount Kailash, and gathering courage to deal with their failings, the Kirtis seem to be running away from the protection and benevolence of their ancient god. Long before the, cartogra long before the cartographic definition of the Himalayas had become universally known, the Kiratis used to believe their homeland was filled with mountains and even higher mountains stood behind them, in an unending sequence. One would thus have to travel from one rugged mountain range across to another just as rugged till one day the traveler may suddenly descend, descend into a pleasantly warm green valley where beautiful fragrant, fragrant flowers are abloom and where trees are all laden with luscious fruit. Such would be the domicile of Shiva, the mythical land of Paru, Mount Kailash, the heavenly abode of God. The Akiratis believe their God lives in this beautiful ideal world, although mythical yet within reach of humanity, while their own world was rugged, mountainous, and real. It is entirely possible that upon the basis of this Akirati folklore, the myth of Shangri-La was born. One, one may also concede the possibility that early Kirati travelers could have learned the biblical story of the Garden of Eden and then assimilated the creation story of the Bible into their own or vice versa. We shall, we shall presently read about their travels later in this. Okay, The Brahmins, even before the epoch of recorded historical time, so that's what that means. So basically, the the zero point in the Gregorian calendar is basically when they decided, okay, this is where we're going to start uh, writing down history, apparently. I guess that's what it means. And everything before that was um, oral tradition. At least that's what I'm assuming. Okay, um... Okay, uh, the Brahmins, even before the epoch of recorded historical time, had the hunter god of the Kirati antiquity arrogated as one of the Brahmanic trinity gods amidst the pantheon of their other gods. This sounds like Paul when he went to the Romans and he said, see that open spot for the god you guys don't know? That's the spot for Jesus. This sounds very similar. All of this sounds very similar. It's just... When one, let's say, group of people takes over another and they have to, you know, all kind of get along and they have to talk about their comic book heroes and how they can get along, that's basically what religion is. Is our psyches, our gods, played out, projected out, and, you know, they have to get along now, so 
how do we do that? And that's basically what religion is, I think. At least recorded history. Or recorded, um, well, let's just say history and mythology have always gone hand in hand. It is highly probable that as the concept of supreme trinity, gods began to exercise stronger hold of the Brahmanic imaginations. The influence of ancient Vedic gods of the Hindus began to diminish gradually. According to Brahmanic traditions, the Vedic gods of the Hindus and the demons are perpetually at war throughout the universe, and Shiva as the mighty hunter god of the Himalayas became the most welcome addition to the pantheon of gods. The Karatis are ethnic Mongolians, and hence god Shiva is their noble contribution to the pantheon of Brahmanic divinities. Yes, yeah, so are, 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 is this saying that the Karatis brought god Shiva to the Brahmanic pantheon? Once the Kirti god Shiva became fully Brahmanized, wait, what? So it is, he, huh? The ancient link of the Hindus with their Vedic gods was considered redundant and no more than their memory faintly survives today. Vedic gods of the Hindus are today only a distant memory, and all but a very few would recognize their attributes. Paru Hung of the Kirtis, Mount Kailash who became variously known as Shankar Nat Nataraj. Oh, this is the... Okay, that's the person. Never mind. Sorry. Paruhang of the Kirtis, who became variously known as Shankar Nataraj Mahes or Ma Mahadeo in Brahmanic literature, was an ascetic leading a celibate life. However, as he became more and more Brahmanized, in conformity with Brahmanic belief system, Shankar was required to take a wife, a female counterpart. Yo! In other words, a married Shiva is a latter-day interpolation, but the institution of marriage has done no harm to his image. Anyways. Okay, then the epic battle of Mahabharata, we know that. The Age of the Purans, okay. I'm just saying. Okay, Manjushri and the characters of Kathmandu. It's just. It's just like. Mythology, if we, if we, if we take it as. Um, what the royal families did. Then, huh? What, dude? This is what I'm saying. These guys have some crazy. Okay, historicity of Bung Sawali, King Yelung Hang, has been acknowledged as the founder of Kirti Dynasty of Kathmandu, which has been worked out to be in. Or around 975 BC. Traditionally, he is held to be the king whom Manjushri had himself. Okay. Let me read you what. Uh, okay. Um.
family's tradition relates that the first of the ancestral Kirati entered Nepal's eastern hills through the Barahachetra Gorge of the Kosi Valley. Um, fucking hey, where was the thing I fucking found, man? God damn it, man. Religion. Rise have been following Kirat religion since the ancient time. Kirat religion is based on animistic nature and ancestor worship. Rise do not believe in heaven or hell. There is no religious hierarchy. Kirat Rise engage engages uh, Mangpa, Pijua, Nak Chung. Oh, yeah, that's the one I'm looking for. The Nak Chung. He's the shaman. Apparently, their gods. Sumnima and Paruhang as the archetypical proto-female and proto-male. They're, those are their gods. Mother Earth and uh, uh, Father Sky God. This is like archetypically typical. Like This is like you talking about going way back to the original. That's what it is. The Huh. So that's interesting. Okay. Um. Sorry, I'm trying to find. Okay. Religion, rise shamanism. There we go. Fucking. Rai shamanism comprises a plurality of shamanic traditions, varied but closely related like the Rai groups themselves. The Rai in East Nepal consists of numerous sub-tribes. The Mundam The Mundam is the oral tradition among the Rais and it is also a long-standing and ancient though not unchanging ritual practice. Mundam is also addressed as rhythm ha huh. rhythm literally rhythm like rhythm madam or pelam literally muna means man and dum means talk which can be said speaking of man or oral talking as a whole the mundam is an oral tradition so it may differ in place what the term mundam is generally pronounced as mundam Okay, I'm starting to get because mm, I had found. I mean, if you look up these, if you look up the rye shamans on YouTube, like you will see the Bible, the Old Testament played out right in front of you. They're doing all of it. All the symbology and everything is right there, man. And you know what's funny? You know what's crazy? They have in their in their flags and stuff. Or, or I don't know if they're flags, but I have seen the 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 star shape, the the sacred geometry star, the six sided star on the the royals. Um, clothes.
Which is interesting. Th why is that? Why do they have that star on their on their uh, on their clothes? Okay. Um. <sighs> fucking a. Where? How? Where? What was it called, man? It's fucking. This is bullshit, man. Like, I swear there was a different category when I looked up. When I looked this shit up yesterday, man. Okay, Kirata. No. Kirati people. Okay, Kirat Munda, Nakchong, here we go. Fucking it, that's what it's called. Nakchong or Mangpa are shamans of the rise, an ethnic group that is predominantly located in the Himalayas of Nepal, Sikkim, Darjeeling, and Kalimpong. Nakchong maintain a vegetarian diet, vegetarian diet as part of their spiritual regime, 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 <laughs> regiment, regime. The Kirati believe that Nakchong are chosen bodies of good spirits. One of the foremost Kirat Mundam has taught that there are two types of spirits. Rumahang, the divine spirit, is a supreme spirit who created the universe and living beings on this earth. Rumahang represents truth, happiness, compassion, and love. Conversely, the devil spirits represents destruction, jealousy, and hatred. Thus, Nakchang act under Rumahang against the devil spirits. Those who possess a magical weapon are regarded as chosen bodies of the devil spirit. On the other hand, Nakchang do not have any magical weapons to harm or kill other living beings. Nakchang is the main priest of the Sakela shrine. Everybody cannot be a Nakchang or Nakchang Ma. Okay, Nakchang Ma is just female. There are special rituals, myths, and beliefs that should be fulfilled. There are two ways to be a perfect Nakchang or Nakchang Ma. One, it should be after the death of the old Nakchang, society decides to make a new Nakchang. There are certain criteria such as he should be old, must have knowledge of the 
Mudumi language and knowledge about rye rituals. Second, Champa Nakchang to define this type of Nakchang. Nakchang is from is formed through their dreams with having special power that makes them to shiver. How Nakchang and Nakchang Ma is formed. In addition, through their dreams, they should be Nakchang or Nakchang Ma, that is male and female respectively. It is believed that if they see a hen in their dreams, they should be a Nakchang Ma. Nakchang is the opposite of it. Okay, It is believed that someone who starts to shiver should become the Kirati priest. But after having the shiver or dreaming is not an ultimate result of it. Then they go through some tests, blah, 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 to make sure, you know, they're real. The Bible is all about this shit. The New Testament, you look at the New Testament through this lens, it's talk. It's all about this stuff, man. You you go watch these, um, uh, these Nepali shamans. You go, just go watch uh, Nepali shamans on YouTube. You will see the Bible still being played out today. Alright. There was something I wanted to read. Okay. Um from this from this one. Kirati Mongolian monks travel westward. Yeah. Alright. We have now arrived at at that stage in Kirati history from where we enter the unfamiliar grounds, the grounds trodden by the Kirati Mongolian monks of ancient times as they traveled far beyond the confines of their homeland. Our unfamiliarity to this period of history has actually grown in obscurity for the simple reason that the monks were not concerned about leaving behind any details of their journeys they prefer to work in anonymity their optimism has rendered the scope of our investigation even more restricted and consequently we rely and we rely entirely upon circumstantial evidence what we know for certain however is the fact that they went west and that it was where we are going to begin our investigation. Ashok the Great, 3rd century BC, has left behind his edicts engraved in the rocks, which record that his emissary monks traveled to the west, spreading the message of hope of Nirwan to every sentient being seeking salvation. One of his westerly neighbors they identify by name is Antiochus, to be Ashok's Contemporary, contemporary Hellenic ruler of the region comprising roughly of modern-day Syria, Iraq, Iran, Jordan, and Israel. Hmm. Hmm. Israel is just a buffer point of for Africa and Eurasia. That's all it is. Israel is the meeting point of all those different regions. Africa... Fucking the Middle East, Europe, China, Mongolia, India, everything. Israel is the point point where all those civilizations meet. That's why it's a choke point. That's why it's so important. That's why everyone wants to control that point. Because that is 
literally from back in the day the Silk Road all the way from literally the coast of China basically from Taiwan all the way to Israel the Silk Road it connected all of us all our religions all our everything and that was just the land that was just the land and on top of that we had boats we were doing we had the Silk Road for the land and on top of that wherever uh, uh, the land could not reach we had boats we had full we had the whole world literally connected because back then the the uh, uh, Russia and North America Russia and Alaska now I guess was connected by the land bridge the ice the ice bridge over the anyways we all know so yeah, it's it's just interesting, man. That's all I'm saying. It's so much shit went down in that area. So much. All right. Um. One of his westerly neighbors, they identify. Okay, Hellenic Iran. Blah blah blah. It is relevant here to mention that the empire of Alexander the Great has ex- had extended from Egypt to the west to as far east as modern-day Pakistan, and upon his demise, his vast empire was divided amongst three of his contending generals. The domain of Antiochus lay at the middle of the three. Bactrian Empire lay to his east, while Ptolemaic Empire was further to the southwest. We have evidence of several icons of the Buddha unearthed from the region of Bactria with Hellenic features and find him covered in Hellenic draperies. Confined within modern museums are seen several images of the Enlightened One in his anthropomorphic form, appearing more like Greek god Apollo than the Kirati Mongolian prince that he was. These artistic renderings support our investigation and help us understand how the Buddha was gradually being Hellenized as the monks delivered the gospel of Nirwan to the West. Yeah, Stoicism. What do you think that is? They 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 literally they call it fucking Buddhism of the West. They themselves call it the Buddhism of the West. How do you think it got there? References are found in the Holy Bible indicating Jesus had spent some time in the Arabian desert. We also know that John the Baptist spent many hours out in the desert before he began preaching. Subsequent to being mysteriously blinded on his way to Damascus and after regaining his sight, St. Paul says he spent three long years in the Arabian desert before starting his own ministry. We hold these accounts of Jesus and the saints and the saints spending good deal of their time out in the desert as biblical truths but no recorded account of their sojourn there is available to help us understand what they all ever did in the desert exactly the lost years well guess what some authors have done scholarly research on the lost years of Jesus and ventured to tell the figmental accounts of how Jesus would have traveled to the east, learning as well as teaching. It is incredible these authors should arrive at such a conclusion that Jesus had traveled eastward, even though they had at their disposal not an iota of evidence in support of their hypothesis. This is what I'm saying. I had heard this story before, okay? 
me coming out of Christianity, just hearing Jesus went east was what? Check this out. <laughs> However, <laughs> had these authors been familiar with the accounts of the Buddhist monks and the presence of their monasteries right in the middle of Judeo-Christian communities, their thesis would have gained much greater popular acceptance. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Someone's trying to hide all this. Someone's trying to hide all this just to make the West look the best. It's just, it's just, come on, man. Let's grow up. Let's all of us just grow up already. Knowledge of active presence of Kirati Mongolian monks in the Middle Eastern desert would have provided sound enough reason for Jesus to have traveled eastward to the temple of Swayam in Kathmandu where the Buddha is known to have made a pilgrimage five centuries earlier okay so while I was reading all this I was like well if I'm saying Jesus was a horse then how does any of this fit in so because I was like okay if there's there's this pattern there's this pattern of horses shamans and out in nature usually mountains usually, let's say mountains okay i'll leave it at mountains because before they used to most most usually before it used to be volcanoes but i'll leave it at i'll stop at mountains okay this theme can, seems to be consistent mountain gods ascetics who lived up in mountains and animals are involved and but then it's like the ones who write down most of the time these it's I don't know do the ascetics write down their teachings or they're the ones who know the stuff and then the oral tradition and then somebody else who wrote the shit down they're the ones who I guess were the story collectors the city folk who needed I don't know to who needed stories to control their kingdom I don't know it's just like I'm trying I'm trying to make sense of all this like cuz my question was then, okay, if Jesus was a horse, then all the stuff that Jesus said in the Bible, let's say, who the fuck said these things then? Someone had to say these things, so, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, I'll just keep reading. Temple of uh, some blah, blah, blah. St. Luke, the author of Book of Acts. In the Holy Bible and writing about the time of Jesus makes unambiguous statement of devout men living in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven which by default must be interpreted to have included the Kirati Mongolian monks st. Paul testifies in his letter to the Romans that he learned much from the Greek as well as the barbarians but makes no effort to to identify who his barbarian teachers were st. Paul was a Pharisee which means he was a learned pundit of mosaic 
He was a learned pundit of Mosaic law, and while it is understandable he would have read Greek in a normal course of study, nowhere in the biblical tradition is mentioned a Pharisee ever learning anything from the barbarians. I agree, the Bible never mentioned that. It is hence perfectly logical to conclude that St. Paul is here referring to his spending three years following the Damascus Road episode in Petra, cave monastery under the tutelage of curity mongolian monks all right so this book claims that all these people were taught by these curity mongolian monks buddhist monks in this area petra and i've heard the whole petra thing involved with the nestorian christians too so that's interesting and because all these locations people would be like why are these are there these random things in the middle of the desert well back then they were basically like stop points rest areas for for all the caravans and the travelers and the merchants on the silk road i mean here let me look up where fucking petra is man I think it's in Iraq or Afghanistan. It's a town in Jordan, right? I think that's the one, right? Or historical landmark in Jordan. Yeah, it's uh, it's right there, right under Jerusalem. A great temple. Yeah, it's all right here. Holy shit balls. It's all right here. Right here under fucking Israel. Petra is right here. What the fuck? What the fuck? Okay. Petra is a famous archaeological site in Jordan's southwestern desert. It was the capital of the Nabataean kingdom. This is what I'm saying, man. Like, what is going okay, anyways. Mm. Okay, the... The New Testament also refers to instances of men practicing extreme austerity, living in caves and wandering about in deserts, but do not disclose their identity. This kind of makes me think of the Essenes also. Were the Essenes these people then? The Essenes. Kirti arise. Essenes. Anyways. Um, the Bible as we know it today had undergone substantial redaction during its final compilation around 3rd century AD. During the process of editing, the priestly editors would certainly have scored out all such details which did not agree with the biblical doctrine. It is but reasonable to assume the identity of the Buddhist monks who taught them these lessons were first on the list to be erased. Of one such reference, however, we are certain. Here we may recall the incident where St. Paul contends with the Greeks worshipping an unknown god. Yeah, this is exactly what I was talking about. It is well nigh impossible to expect the culturally sophisticated Greek to be so naive as to be found worshipping an unknown god. In the Hellenistic Greek world where fate and, de and death ruled their life, 
the abstract thought of an unknown god attracting their attention would amount to ridiculing Greek culture. Huh, okay, this is a, definitely a different take on it. What we are missing here actually is that the Greek were led by the Buddhist monks to acknowledge the basic attributes of the Adi Buddha is unknowable. That God is unknowable. The appellation of the Buddha and the temple was confused during the translation, which was further only muddled up by inaccurate redaction. It therefore establishes a stage where Buddhism appears to have already reached Greece just before Christianity too was spreading westward beyond Jerusalem. Even as early as 1st century BC, Titus Lucretius Carcus had been writing vigorously against the threat of Oriental religion to the Roman Empire. Although Buddhism has not been specifically mentioned, we must arrive at this conclusion by default. Early Christian theologians, in particular Origen, Adamantius, the celebrated disciple of of Clement of Alexandria have written ex exhaustively on Jesus Christ being the bearer of perfect knowledge. What? Albeit Origen had refuted Gnosticism while attempting to provide theologically respectable doctrinal consensus, his philosophy shows unmistakable Buddhistic imprint. Mankind is redeemed by Christ as they received true knowledge he taught and that we are made in the image of God and are called to be one with God. These theologians too have unanimously emphasized that God is ultimately unknowable. It is possible to dispute that these theologians could just as well have received this lesson from their own undisclosed source. But then, Origen has also said that if some suffer in this world through no apparent fault of their own means that they have sinned in the in a prior existence. It will be their deeds in this life that determine their status in the next. Needless to say, this is precisely how the Buddhist monks would have taught the doctrine of karma and Origen's writings very clearly show he had excelled in Buddhist scholarship. Yeah, man, that's what I'm saying, man. It's got nothing to do with who's smarter and who... It's nothing. It's just some civilizations were around longer. And hence, they just... Just knew more shit, man. It's got nothing to do with... I mean, imagine the older you are, the more you know shit, right? I mean, hopefully... <laughs> okay, during the formative years of Christianity, many churches were plagued by a group of sectarian believers known as agnostics who were making deep impressions in early Christian world. The word agnosticism, ag agnosticism is derived from Greek root word gnosis, which simply means knowledge or wisdom. Once again, we are reminded of how the Buddhist monks would have emphasized upon their Greek disciples that an enlightened life is also a purposeful life and hence the disciples were encouraged to seek enlightenment. It brings forth to mind the first of the three tenets of the Buddhist faith, 
I seek refuge in the enlightened one. Gnosis is therefore but an inaccurate rendition of the expression wisdom, enlightened one, the Buddha. There's buddhi and then there's buddha. On careful examination, we are able to discern that the agnostics has actually been preaching this very buddhistic message and it stands to reason the redactors have done a good job of delinking the two. One transcendent and noble gift of the Kirati Mongolian monks to the Christian world is the institution of monasticism. The Buddhist monks had transplanted the philosophy and the virtues of monastic life into the Western world. It was the chosen life of chastity, poverty, and obedience of monkhood to which Western intellect have added their own virtues. Monasticism took firm root in the Christian world whilst it was yet in its formative years and has been in evidence exercising its powerful influence right through the Renaissance until present day. We are reminded also of an uncanny similarity between the nativity scenes of Siddhartha, Gautama, and Jesus of Nazareth. Just as three Hindu trinity gods Brahma, Vishnu, and Mahesh had arrived to pay obeisance to the Buddha-to-be at his birth, so do three wise men from the east arrive at the nativity scene of Jesus of Nazareth. Where was Buddha born? Hmm. <laughs> Both these seeds could very well have been coincidental, but we may just so take heed of the influential presence of Kirati Mongolian monks in the biblical land during and prior to the birth of Jesus. It has become more of a detective work than anything else as we seek to understand and chronicle the accounts of spread of Buddhism westward. The circumstances and under which the influence of Buddhism dissipated in the Indus Gangetic Plains have been discussed in earlier chapter. The Golden Age of Hinduism was preceded by the great Volker von der Rungen, Rungen which had caused the region to experience a massive population vacuum. The resultant decreased the resultant decreased popular support because intake of novitiate to diminish to the extent which weakened Buddhism to its core. I have no idea what that meant. Whatever residual traces of Buddhism that were left in the country got obliterated at the resurgence of Dewa worshipping Hinduism. From 10th century AD onwards, Afghan invaders had begun their conquest and ultimate subjugation of Hindustan. They and the subsequent Muslim conquerors, however, have kept fairly meticulous records of their conquests, and it is interesting to note that the Muslim chronicles make no mention of any trace of Buddhism encountered in the region. So total was the obliteration of the Buddhism from India that as late as mid-19th century AD, Mekaraman, the philosopher-prince of Myanmar, had inquired of the Royal Asiatic Society if the historical Buddha could have been born in Lhasa, Tibet. The Burmese, the Burmese prince had also wished to know if traces of the celebrated deer park 
where the enlightened one had preached his first sermon could be located somewhere within Tibet. Great deal of interest in historical Buddhism has roused in Myanmar and in the Buddhist world when the British explorers reported how Buddhism was alive and well in that forbidden land of Tibet. During the past 15 centuries, Preceding the arrival of the Europeans in the scene, Buddhism was so conspicuous by its absence from Indian scene that the Burmese prince had no reason to imagine Buddhism could have any linkage with India. Nevertheless, the cause of Buddhism suffered even a graver tragedy when during the 18th century European scholars had for the first time begun to explore the lost grounds of Buddhism. They had sought elucidations from the Brahmins, the very elements who had been the cause of the Buddhism's demise at the first instance. European scholars certainly did not do so out of malice, for they were so totally ignorant of Buddhism's history that they lapped up every piece of disinformation the Brahmanic intelligentsia was able to contrive. Unfortunately, even the modern scholars engaged in historical research of early Buddhism rely upon the same flawed source and hence ingenuously continue to echo the distorted disinformation their forebears had created. To cap it all, the Brahmanic elements were also able to fraudulently claim authorship as well as ipso facto ownership of the enormous volumes of Mahayana Sanskrit literature discovered by Brian Hodgson in Kathmandu, Nepal. Thus, a seemingly consequential, seemingly inconsequential oversight of naive European scholarship committed perhaps inadvertently inflicted the severest damage to the genius of pre-Brahmanic Kirati Mongolians of Nepal. Yeah, I mean, what do you know? I mean, it takes one to know one. It takes one to... <laughs> Two people could be looking at the same thing and one could see a fucking Picasso painting and one could be looking at God knows what, man. It's, it's it's got to do with how much you know. Okay, not only did Brian Hodgson discover in Kathmandu volumes of Sanskrit manuscripts of volumes of Sanskrit manuscripts of Mahayana Buddhism of pre-Brahmanic antiquity, he was able to clandestinely dispatch several hundreds of them to various libraries at Oxford, Cambridge. London, Paris, and East India Company. Basically, the West got reintroduced back to shamanism. Upon closer examination, however, these manuscripts were found to contain information detrimental to the Brahmanic interests. In these manuscripts, Hindu gods and goddesses are depicted having been relegated to positions of lesser consequence, which has prevented their systemic study until this day. So it's basically like city gods versus nature gods. That's basically what it is. Brian Hodgson was a real life maverick, a self a self taught man who would who would have no problem getting the record straight had he been slightly better informed. Hodgson was simply overwhelmed 
by the enormous volume of Buddhist Mahayana manuscripts his Nepalese Buddhist guru made available to him. And although he acknowledges that Amrita Nanda, his guru, was the greatest Sanskrit scholar known to, to him, he, he succumbed to the Brahmanic credo that Sanskrit is the language of Hindu gods and none but a Brahmin could learn it. So without batting an eyelid, Brian Hodgson clandestinely shipped the priceless manuscripts out, labeling them as Brahmanic literature. We may reasonably hope that one day these manuscripts will receive due attention they deserve and be studied for the wisdom they contain as was intended by their authors of pre-Brahmanic Nepal. Okay, and then we got some pictures of or of statues of Buddha in Greek in Greece. He does look more Greek. Mm, Petra, Buddha's cave monasteries. Okay, the Kirtis have an expression that perfectly describes the initiation into a monk's life. The first step of a monk is to live in caves. The expression living in a cave synonymously also means choosing the calling of a monk. All these motherfuckers building a man cave in their basement, that's probably what you're trying to do. Every male child in his preteens was encouraged to earn his life's merit by spending some years of his young life in a monastery. During these years, the young novitiates are given freedom to choose between life in the monastery or return home to continue normal domestic life after completion of appointed time. Earliest Buddhist monasteries were a simple cluster of thatched huts. As the need for more permanent monasteries was felt, the monks moved into caves which provided natural shelter. In due course of time, they were able to carve out entire monasteries within massive rock face. So that's how it started. There are ruins of several caves scattered over length and breadth of, A of South Asia that had once been occupied by multitudes of monks and their disciples. As royal patronages and popular support declined during the golden age of Hinduism, these monasteries were abandoned and fallen into disuse and neglect. Soon, wild vegetation took over and those magnificent cave monasteries remained hidden for more than 15 centuries. It's just, god damn, the truth always comes out. Why not get it over with? Why can't we all get along? Why does everything good have to come from the West? Huh? Come on, man. Come on, man. Let's, let's all grow the fuck up, man. I mean, look at some of the leaders of the West. Look at the way they behave. Come on. These fuckers forgot how to do the, do their jobs, man. They they forgot how to lead. They just know how to act now. They forgot how to fucking do their jobs. You've had it so good for so long. Building your whole foundation on bullshit lies. It's, it's the Batman. It's, it's fucking the Dark Knight story. <laughs> Fuck you, David. So insecure? Are you so insecure? In 1819, two British army officers were following the trails of a tiger near the small town of Ajanta in western India. Deep in the forest, they suddenly came upon some of the most exquisite, exquisitely carved magnificent cave monasteries that had been abandoned 
by their occupants more than a million more than a millennium ago these ancient buddhist monasteries forgotten by time for so long thus came to the limelight once again when royal asiatic society recognized them and began to publicize the discovery not well known as ajanta caves in a very similar situation in 1812 johann burckhardt a swiss explorer had rediscovered the ancient city of petra abandoned and forgotten in the middle of the jordanian desert once again the Scholars have hurriedly identified the ancient ruins to be the handiwork of Nabataeans or Edomites, biblical people long forgotten. Biblical people long forgotten. On closer examination, however, Petra actually is the cave monastery cre created by Kirti Mongolian monks where they had once lived and preached. This is crazy. I had never heard anything about these people, and I just happened to come upon them from just watching a video a uh, uh, documentary on Nepal it's like this is fucking crazy <laughs> on closer examination however Petra actually is a cave monastery created by the Kirti Mongolian monks where they had once lived and preached architecturally the cave monastery of Petra is Hellenized to the extent that they show much less Buddhistic imprint as do the caves of Ajanta, considering the Buddha of the Middle East had himself begun to metamorphose and appear so much like Greek sun god Apollo, Apollo than the Kirati Mongolian prince that he was. It perhaps is reasonable to expect the monastery that housed his image too should conform. Yeah, fair enough, I guess. The cave monasteries have sometimes been identified simply as caves that provided shelter to the monks, but in reality, the caves actually relate to the very essence of early Buddhist society. Besides providing residential facilities to the community, the caves provided repositories to the canonical literature, as they were also the centers from where the message of Nirwan and four noble truths was spread. The cave monasteries served as focal points in the study of canonical literature as well as Buddhistic arts and crafts. Oftentimes these cave monasteries have been identified also as rock-cut sanctuaries for they actually are expansive halls carved out of solid rock face. These enormous Man-made recesses are some of the most sophisticated artwork in that they become more of a sculpture than they are works of architecture. Layout of these sanctuaries is almost always uniform. The entrance to the halls are 30 to 40 feet wide, which leads one straight into a semicircular apse 50 to 60 feet inside where a replica of Chaitya or Swayambhunath temple in miniature the object of worship is located yeah it's sacred geometry it's mandalas it's it's sound it's consciousness it's temples are a a a, a outward manifestation of the human condition the the holy of holies is your heart the replica of chaitya in the miniature in the middle of the 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 temple is your heart 
in these old Catholic cathedrals, the the in, on the floor when when they would have the circle leading to the center, that's basically the same symbology is the temple, which is your body, is what holds that the, your heartbeat. Large sanctuaries are about 40 feet wide with 40 feet high vault at the entrance and about 120 feet deep from entrance to the apse. This, the halls are lined with columns on either side as if supporting the roof, although the actual carving work was carried out in reverse. The workmen would first tunnel themselves in at roof level and gradually chisel their way down to floor level. What the fuck did I say? It was like they were as if these temples came down from heaven. That's what it means. It was built from the top to the bottom. Oh my god. The older towers in the Himalayas were usually on the top. Fucking they got it. I got it. We know it from the work in progress left inside several unfinished caves. The columns stood 6 to 10 feet away from the walls and functioned as aisles to facilitate the devotees to circumambulate the Chaitya while the monks and the adepts remained in the midsection engrossed in prayer and meditation. I'm assuming this Chaitya is... Uh, let me look it up just to be sure. Chaitya. A Chaitya, Chaitya Hall, refers to a shrine, sanctuary, temple, or prayer hall in Indian religions. The term is most common in Buddhism, where it refers to a space with a stupa and a round apse at, apse, apse, A-P-S-E, at the end opposite the entrance, a high roof with a rounded profile. Hmm, kind of looks like... What they have at the Vatican. Hmm. Yeah, this is actually fucking crazy. If you look at some of these pictures. Huh. It's a. It's a. It's. Yo. This is to do with acoustics, man. Yo, this is to do with acoustics. Okay, I'm gonna Okay, I'm gonna finish this and do some more research on that. Columns with the lion of the Sakyas placed on top often adorn entrance to some of these cave monasteries. Yeah, because the goddess worship has lions is is, is to do with lion symbology, okay. Main sanctuaries are flanked by smaller caves which would which would apparently have served as the living quarters for the monks and the novitiates. Yep, it's all coming back. Don't worry, it's all coming back. The nature goddess worship lions, animals, shamans, serpents, all kund all that stuff. Kundalini, fucking tantric, all that shit. It's coming back, man. It's coming back. Come back, peace.